A while back, I learned a, a curious description of how some uh, label those in our culture, and it was called a, a functional deist. You ever heard that term before, a functional deist? You might ask, what is deism? Deism is the fundamental belief that this world and all that's in it was made by a creator who set things in motion and then stepped back to watch things unfold. Like someone who makes a clock, getting it into great working condition, then stands back to watch it work. There are some in this the last few years that have piggybacked on that description uh, to, to label, I guess, of people and their thinking, and they, they've changed it, and they call it moralistic therapeutic deism. Let me repeat that again. Moralistic therapeutic deism. And the author of this term kind of defined it as they were surveying uh, the American Christians and, and primarily of the age from 13 to 20 that tend to fall into this moralistic therapeutic deism. And he says this, they believe first that God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. Second, God wants people to be good, to be nice and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and most other world religions. Third, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. Fourth, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. And fifth, good people go to heaven when they die. One writer said, this, I'm convinced, is how many of us live even as Christians. Steeped in a system of thought which has eliminated God from the conversation, we spend most of our days exerting all of our energy to make something happen. We pray, on occasion at least, for God to do something significant, but then it doesn't happen and we assume that prayer doesn't work. We read the stories of the Bible, how God rescues, heals, and intervenes, but it largely falls on deaf ears as we're convinced that those were for the days of old. Is this true for you? Are you a functional deist? Do you believe in the big guy in the sky? That he doesn't really, doesn't really impact your life, doesn't really do anything, he just created and then stepped back to, to watch. This is a significant week, right? Do you guys know what's happening this week? Something's happening on Tuesday, I hear. This morning, my goal is not to convince you to vote for a particular candidate. So if you came this morning and thought I would, I'm sorry. I have something else that I believe is more important to share with you. It's something that God has been teaching me, and I want to share because I feel it's of greater importance than which candidate you'll vote for. Furthermore, I suspect that many of you here this morning, like myself, have already cast your vote. So whether you voted or not, this morning is not going to look at the election per se, but our responsibility to the government from 1 Timothy chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles, please turn to that if you haven't already. And we're going to read just the first seven verses of second, or excuse me, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Paul writing to Timothy says, First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly, and dignified in every way. This is good, and it's pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. 
For this I was appointed a preacher and apostle. I'm telling the truth, I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. The passage here this morning is about prayer. Something that we know about, but maybe seldom practice when it comes to our government. There's some questions that I want to answer as we look at these seven verses this morning. The who, what, why questions. First, we're going to look at the what question. What is it that Paul instructs us to do? He says we're to pray, and it's of first importance, as says in verse 1. That's his desire. The second, we're going to look at the who question. Who are we to pray for? Paul says in a few verses that we're to pray for all sorts of people, and then he gets more specific to the neglected ones in verse 2. And third, we're going to answer the why question. I like this question. I seem to ask it a lot. Why? I have a five-year-old at home, too, that asks that question a lot. Why, Dad? Why are we to pray for these people? What difference does it make to pray for them? What is the motivation for these prayers? So this is what we're going to look at in detail this morning. But before we do, would you join me in prayer? Father, I thank you for another opportunity to come freely and openly to worship you. And God, we recognize that this might not always be the case. And yet we experience this freedom this morning. The joy to come and gather as the body of Christ, the family of God here in Edgewood, to worship you. That's why we come, to worship you in singing, to worship you in prayer, to worship you in the reading of your word and the preaching of your word. And God, you are our focus this morning. I pray that you would teach us. God, I ask that you would speak through me this morning. I pray that I would be able to stand aside and allow you to be the teacher this morning. May you be honored and glorified in this place, God. For I ask it all in Jesus' name, amen. So the first question I want to answer is the what question. What is it that Paul is instructing us to do in this passage? He starts in verse one. First of all, then, I urge you that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions. This is of great importance to Paul as he instructs Timothy as it becomes more clear on why as we look through this, this statement. But to see why, what, what he's talking about here, we need to step back into chapter one. And I want to read just a, the last few verses of, of chapter one. Look at verse 18 with me in verse uh, through 20. Verse 18 says, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. He's instructing him to, to wage the good warfare, holding faith with a good conscience. A good conscience. He's warning Timothy If you reject a good conscience, if you neglect your conscience, you may make shipwreck of your faith. 
And he gives an example here of Hymenaeus and Alexander. And it's a warning. And these two, Paul says, shipwrecked their faith. A good conscience is a conscience that does not condemn you for the things that you do or don't do. So Paul says, if you don't want to shipwreck your faith, if you want to keep it afloat, if you want to stay the course of your faith, then don't do things that go against your conscience. Do the things that are in line with your conscience. And we want a vibrant faith, don't we? Having a clear and good conscience ties in perfectly with faith. I think we can understand this in our lives and our experiences in our lives. If I fall into a, a habit and my conscience begins to condemn me, what happens is my conscience is then testifying against me. Saying, Jeff, you, you preach and you talk a whole lot about faith, Jeff, and you talk about trusting in God and yet your actions and your words and your heart show that you're trusting in yourself. You're trusting your knowledge when you're trusting in God. Because if you really trusted in God, Jeff, your heart wouldn't be in angst and worry and fear. You would be resting in the king of the universe. And if I so continue to disregard my conscience, I'm poking holes in the belly of my faith, so to say, which brings in water and causes it to sink. And so one of two things must happen when we're pricked in our conscience. We either go around and plug up all the holes or we eventually show that our faith was never really seaworthy to begin with. And then we sink into unbelief and blasphemy like Hymenaeus and Alexander. So Paul charges Timothy in these verses to hold on to the faith by keeping a good conscience. If you wanna read an excellent book that I read in the last few months about conscience, it's titled Conscience. What is it, how to train it, and loving those who differ. And especially in light of this toxic election cycle, this might be a good book to read. I encourage you to get it. Read it with your Bible wide open and learn and grow. So Paul says, since you must keep a good conscience in order not to shipwreck your faith, he urges then in chapter two, it just follows right in line here. In verse one, to pray. Pray for all sorts of people. So at the top of the list to keep a good conscience is our prayer life. First of all, the first importance, we begin with prayer. And then he lists three, four things actually as it relates to prayer. First he says supplications, or your version might say entreaties or petitions or requests. And the second is prayers, and the third is intercessions. And these three words are so tightly interwoven in the Greek that it's very hard to make a distinction between them. And Paul is wanting prayer that is motivated for the good of others, meeting the needs in their lives, and speaking to God on behalf of them, bringing requests to him. One commentator wrote about this. He said that the initial prayer term distinguishes the element of insufficiency by the requester. And the second highlights the devotion by the seeker, and the third underscores the childlike confidence of the one petitioning. I like that description. It fits beautifully of what the Bible teaches of what a prayer life should be for a believer. We, we come to God on behalf of others, insufficient of ourselves, but with devotion to God and asking with a childlike confidence that God will not only hear, but he will act, that he will answer. 
And the fourth word that Paul uses is thanksgiving. And he brings this as a motivation for asking. The first three words are expressions of ways to bring requests to God. And the last is an expression of gratitude towards God. And all four are there to communicate to Timothy and to us the importance of prayer. And Paul bookends this whole little seven verses in verse eight. He, he bookends it with another, another reason for prayer. He says, I desire that, that in every pray, place the men should pray, lifting holy hands with, without anger or quarreling. So what should we do? We, we pray. That's clear. But the second question is who? Who should we pray for? Well, in line of this passage, he's, he's again clear for us. At the end of verse one, he says, pray for all people. And then verse two, for kings and all who are in high positions. And then Paul begins to mention groups of people. All people mentioned at the end of verse one is better translated all sorts of people, every kind of people. And then he moves to kings and sovereign rulers and, and those in high positions, those who hold positions of authority. And it seems that Paul is, is instructing Timothy, you need to push out the boundaries of your concern for others. Do not let your prayers be limited to, to one group of people. Don't be limited by one type of people. Let your prayers embrace all kinds of people. Later in the verses that we'll look at this morning, Paul includes the Gentiles. And aren't you thankful like I am that he includes the Gentiles for prayer? Not only that, but he, he goes and instructs and teaches and spreads the gospel. Folks, if he hadn't, where would we be? So our prayers shouldn't only be for the people that we love and the people that we care for. Our prayers should embrace those that we don't. I mean, isn't this the same teaching that Jesus gave for us in the Gospels? Matthew 5, 43 and 44 says, You have heard it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So listen, church. There should be no category of people that you will not pray for. And you need to be honest with yourself this morning. Is there certain types of people that you know or that you think of and you don't want to pray for? Whether that's desire or just you just don't pray for. I mean, think about it. Are there people who you really struggle to pray for? Are there certain types of people that you work with or people in your family or acquaintances or certain races of people or certain religious or religions of people or maybe just maybe certain politicians you know i was going to get there right that you just refuse to pray for it's amazing to think what what paul is saying here right now as he's writing this letter to Timothy, who's pastoring in Ephesus. Paul, most likely, is an, under a house arrest. And he's instructing Timothy to pray and lift up those rulers and authorities. Timothy, pray for Nero, who will bring a trial against me, who will execute Paul. He's going to be put to death and he's telling Timothy to pray for him. 
Think about that. He's saying, listen, even these people who are in high position, who are totally and utterly against the church, against the faith, even these people, pray for them that they would recognize the truth of the gospel, that they would believe. How should we live here? Look, well, he gives us an answer in verse two, how we should live. It says that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Is that true of your life during this election cycle? How have you been feeling lately with this present election? Are you feeling at peace? Are you quiet in your soul? The idea of, of quiet brings the understanding of the absence of any outside disturbance. And the word peaceful brings the idea of any absence of inside disturbance. That's how we should live. So then, our job as a church, and I want you to notice this, is to to live in a way that we're not trusting in the system in which we live. We trust the God who oversees all the systems. And we should never be an agitator of society, talking in ways that stir up strife and talking in ways that stir up ungodly behavior. Do you really think that getting into a debate about the character of either of the presidential candidates will bring peace and quietness? Look over a couple books here to 1 Thessalonians 4. First Thessalonians 4. I want you to see it in the Bible in front of you. So if you don't have a Bible, please let us know. We have some in the foyer. We're a Bible church. We preach what the word says. I want you to see it. So whether it's on your phone or your Bible, I don't care. Just have it open here. 1 Thessalonians 4. Look at verses 11 and 12. Paul, again writing this, says, we are to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Paul says here that we're to study the word in the context of all that's going on in 1 Thessalonians 4 and to be diligent, to be quiet, We shouldn't be the ones being loud and disturbing others. If we're known for anything in this world as Christians, it should be for a quiet demeanor and trusting God. We don't make disturbances. We're we're the ones that are sober. We're the ones that plod. We work, we pray, we trust. We wait on God. And they'll see us as a quiet, faithful follower of Jesus. What Paul is saying in 1 Thessalonians and what Paul is saying here in 1 Timothy is that we as Christians should never be a political agitator. It's not our role in this world. We are here to make all people who live around us, whether their political leanings are with us or against us, to make them friends by, by praying for them, by having discussions that are honoring and godly and dignified rather than responding to them like our enemies or hating them or rejecting them. 
You know, as Christians living in America, we should be model citizens. It doesn't mean that we're apathetic towards politics or towards world affairs, that we shouldn't have an opinion, but that we should live in a way and communicate in a way that shares our beliefs with grace and love and doesn't spurn those that disagree with us. We should be model citizens. Why should we be model citizens? Because this is not our home. Have we forgotten that during this election cycle? If you're a Christian here this morning, you don't belong to this world. You're only passing through. Do you believe this? Do you need to be reminded of this? As Christians here this morning, we're aliens the scripture says, living in this world. This isn't our home. So we shouldn't be so comfortable here that we forget what's gonna come. Church, the best is yet to come after this life is over. The best is yet to come. So we should be model citizens, being a blessing to those around us. And the verse two continues, it says that we may lead peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Godly life is a familiar term that's used throughout this book and, and the second book of Timothy and all the, past, uh, the pastoral epistles. It has the idea of an attitude of reverence. We should be people who are known with an attitude of reverence, reverence towards God. We're living for the majesty and love and holiness and the glory of God. And it should be understood that when someone thinks of a Christian, they think of us in a, in a way that we live a holy life. We live a godly life, a dignified life. You should think of us as people whose hearts are turned away from the world and turned to the living God, living for him alone. And as this passage instructs us, we should be praying, praying for the salvation of all sorts of people. This world has a view of Edgewood Bible Church. This community has a view. And I hope their view isn't that we're known as a, a strong political lobby group or a power people with money for change, but they know us as a peace-loving people who are committed to pray for the salvation of people, who are committed to pray for our local officials, for our policemen, for our authorities, for our mayors, for our governors, for our Senate leaders, for our president. You know, on your bullets and you, you saw a white insert. How to pray for authorities and then listed there all of the authorities just locally here in Edgewood and Milton. And they would pray for them on a regular basis. We're instructed in other passages in, in Romans 13 and 1 Peter that we're, we're to submit to the authority over us. But not only submit, we pray for them. Folks, you know what's more powerful than electing the right president who will then elect the right judges? It's us as the church praying that God would save judges. Us praying that God would move in the decisions of our nation. That's much more powerful. 
And so the next time that you're itching to write that nasty letter to your congressman and how awful he is, may I encourage you to write a letter and tell him that you're praying for him and then give him the gospel. Write it out. Write it with love and grace and hope. Tell them what church is really about. Tell them what your church is about. And then pray for him. Actually pray for him. Not just pray that he does what you want. Pray for his salvation. You know, the next time you're about to share that, that, that photo on Facebook that mocks a political, a politician, the president, stop and pray for them. Is that what you want to be known for as a Christian? You're the Christian that mocks Earnestly asking that God would save them. You know, that's why I let out by the fact of functional deism. We believe that God just started it all and walked away. And we've become functional deists. That Thanks God, we'll take it from here. Or do we respond in a way as Christians that we earnestly go to God and ask God to work? If we, as the church, are concerned to pray, I earnestly believe that God will answer that prayer. And this is why I'm so concerned for, for many Christians that insist that this nation will only become godly if we elect the right leaders. If we elect the right president, then he'll place the right judges. That's not our hope. Judges ruling our benches are not our hope. And if we continue to alienate everyone else that doesn't believe the same we do, the same way we do politically, then, then we just place walls between us and them. And people have asked me this past year if I'm ever going to preach on issues. They implore me to attack issues, and I do, and I will. And the greatest issue that I will attack is sin. I'll attack sin but I'll not attack other people in our society that believe differently than we, than we do because they're living out what they know. They're lost. They need saving. They need Christ. And frankly, I don't want them to throw away Jesus when they reject me or my candidate. So our job as believers is to pray for them. And Paul says, a side benefit for doing this is that we have peace, we have quiet, we have godly behavior and dignified lives. And so I ask, are you praying for your leaders? Are you praying for the, the Supreme Court? I mean, it's a hot topic right now, right? Who are they? Can you name them? Do you know how many we have? We have eight. Are you praying for them by name? Do you know them? Justice Ginberg, Justice Thomas, Justice Roberts, Justice Sotomayor, Justice Kennedy, Justice Alito, Justice Kagan, and Justice Breyer. Do you pray for them? We should be praying for them praying for them that they had wisdom, for guidance, 
sensitivity and discernment, but most of all, praying for their salvation. It's only through a changed heart that they will please God. And we need to pray. That's what we're instructed to do, pray. And so the who of this passage about prayer matters so much because of the why. Why should we pray for them? Why does it matter? Does it really matter? You know, Paul thinks it does. Why do we pray for every sort of person, whether kings or those in high positions? Well, because of verses three through seven. Look again. Paul says, this is good. And it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people, people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there's one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is a testimony given at the proper time. For this, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. This is why we pray. These verses get me out of bed every day. These are the words that bring hope to my soul. This is why we're here, folks. This has got to be one of the greatest mission texts for, for, of all the Bible for the church. We have a mission. We have a gospel. We have a savior. So why do we pray for the lost? Look at verse three. It says, this is good. The word good in the Greek basically means excellent, intrinsically morally good. It is good, just plain right to do this. And what is good? To pray. Pray for these people. God made it to be right. And your moral conscience says it's good. You wouldn't argue with that, would you? Would you really argue and say, no, I shouldn't pray for my lost leaders? Well, no, we say it's good. We should. Why is it good? Because if they're saved, they're saved from hell. Saves them from a pointless and useless life. Isn't that right? I mean, before we come to know Jesus Christ, before he came down and, and dragged our life out of the mire, we had a pointless and useless life. It had no meaning because before Christ, all meaning would eventually fade away into death. But now, now, in Christ, we have life, we have purpose. And we want others to, to know and understand it and experience this. And so since the salvation of our leaders would be the greatest benefit to them and be the greatest benefit to the church and be the greatest benefit to the nation, it is good, it is excellent, it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior. And do you see how, how Paul calls God, what he calls God? God is our Savior. Don't pass over that. I mean, think of that incredible thought. Our God is our Savior. I don't want to grow cold of this. I want to forget this. Our God is our Savior. And what does our Savior desire? Paul says he desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. All sorts of people come to, to know the knowledge of the truth and be saved. That's why we're here, folks. 
That's why we open the doors. That's why we invest in ministries. That's why we support missionaries. That's why we employ pastors, that more people would come to the knowledge of the truth and be saved. And then he says, for there is one God and there's one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. And this right here is the gospel. There is one God and he is holy. He is righteous. He is altogether different than his creation. And there's one mediator. Why do we need a mediator? A mediator is someone who intervenes between two individuals to restore peace. So if Jesus is the mediator, that means there's no peace. There's an issue. What's the issue? Sin. Sin is the issue between men and God. And without Christ, we are sinners and continue to live and breathe and function in sin. We need a mediator. We don't approach God through an angel or a saint or Mary. We need a mediator who's worthy. And God gave us his son. He is our mediator because there is no way that we can save ourselves. We are utterly lost without Jesus Christ. Paul continues, he says, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is a testimony given at the proper time. Jesus Christ freely gave himself to die for our sins. John's gospel in chapter 10, we're gonna look at this in a few weeks, talks about it. He says, for this reason, this is Jesus talking, for this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have the authority to take it up again. This charge I receive from my Father. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. He voluntarily went to the cross. And he gave himself as a ransom. A ransom is a rich theological term which describes Christ's substitutionary death for us. It's not just a simple word, though. Paul brings it out with a, in the Greek, an added preposition that brings more meaning. Christ did not merely pay a ransom to free us from slavery. He became the victim in our place. He died our death. He bore our sin and he gave himself for his bride. That is why. This is why we pray. This is where our hope is, that people would come to the knowledge of this truth and repent and believe in Jesus Christ. The Christian religion is, is at once the broadest and the narrowest in the world. It is a faith that brings in every possible kind of person, but it brings them in one way, just one. There is one God, only one. If there were two gods, there might be two paths of salvation. You get saved by this God and I'll get saved by that God. But there's only one God and therefore there's only one path of salvation. There's one humanity, 
Only one. If there are two kinds of people, there might be two paths of salvation. You can be part of this group and I'll be part of that group. But there's only one humanity, so there's therefore only one path to salvation. There's one mediator, he says, only one. If there were two mediators, there might be two different paths to salvation. You can have that mediator represent you, and I'll have this mediator represent me. But there's one mediator, therefore there's only one path to salvation. And there's one ransom, only one ransom. If there are two ransoms, there might be two paths to salvation. You have your debt paid by that one, and I'll have my debt paid by this one. But there's only one ransom. Therefore, there's only one path to salvation. One God created one humanity, represented by one mediator, and paid one ransom. There's only one way. And the way of salvation is so broad that it can bring in every type of person who seeks for God, yet it's so narrow that they can only enter through one way, through Jesus Christ. This is the gospel. God desires that all sorts, every type, poor, rich, kings, rulers, high officials, senators, presidents, judges, would all be saved. Paul ends this here by his resume there in verse seven. For this, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. By this, Paul's saying all, all people need to hear the gospel. The people who weren't hearing the gospel were the non-Jews, the Gentiles. It was a, an exclusive faith that needed to go outward. So God raised up a preacher and he sent Paul to preach. And this is what Paul is saying here. He was raised up to go and preach the gospel. We are to pray. Pray for all people, whether kings or those in high positions, so that all may come to know Jesus Christ. And when we remind ourselves of the gospel, it crushes those wicked thoughts that some people are not worthy of our prayers. Just, just think back of who you were before Christ saved you. When you begin to doubt that God could save someone else, the power of the gospel is not in us. It's in him. I've been praying for this message, praying that it will take root in your lives, this passage will sink deep, and that you make it a point on a regular basis to pray for all people. You think of those people that you struggle to pray for. You pray for those high positions, those in authority. And I'm praying that people will know you by your faithfulness to Jesus Christ. And I pray that you'll have opportunity after opportunity to share with others the hope that you have. I pray that as a church, we will represent Christ well. In a moment here, we're going to celebrate communion. And how that ties in here beautifully to the gospel that's preached to us in 1 Timothy. But before we do, I want to pray, and then we'll partake. Join me in prayer. God, this morning we come before your throne. We come humbly, realizing that we, in and of ourselves, are not worthy. And Father, I stand before your people, 
convicted in how little I have prayed for my leaders, for my past presidents, for my current president, for my future president. Forgive me, God, with the power of the gospel, and please give me a righteous attitude. God, I acknowledge that I've been more a cynic than your servant with respect to praying for the government. I have forgotten that you are the one who sets up kings and presidents and governors and Supreme Court justices. Help me not to trust in my wisdom and selecting them, but to trust in you. God, remind us again that we are dual citizens. Citizens of the United States and citizens of a kingdom of God. Remind us that this is truly not our home. We are aliens awaiting our true home. Show us how to use our freedom wisely, to show proper respect to all, including our president and leaders. Remind us again, God, regardless of what happens on Tuesday, that it truly doesn't matter who's sitting at the White House, but it does matter who's sitting on the throne in heaven. Remind us again this morning as Paul wrote to Timothy, the son of the faith, that that Nero was sitting in power and yet he challenged Timothy to pray for him. God, we know no one can stop you or change your plans or thwart your purposes. You open doors that no one can shut and you shut doors that no one can open. And I honor you this morning as my king. I worship you as my savior. I love you, God. No other king would die to make rebels his own. Help us to live faithfully for you. And I pray this in your glorious, grace-filled name. Amen.